This morning we want to look at Leviticus chapter 26 together. Leviticus chapter 26. This book of Leviticus is all about God's holiness and about His expectation and demand for holiness from His people. He says, Be holy because I am holy. And we've looked at the necessary sacrifices and the responsibilities of the priests and the various holy days and the festivals and what makes a person unclean and how a person becomes clean. Israel had a responsibility to be holy. And now God calls for a response in chapter 26. Either God is to be obeyed and the people will live, or God will be disobeyed by the people and they will be destroyed. God is making a promise to the people that He's concerned about their obedience. God is committed to their obedience. And so He's going to show them His commitment based on the reward for, for obeying and the punishment for disobeying. There's a great tract in the rack of the foyer. Two of the best tracts that we have are out there uh, the two of the best tracks that I know about. One is called uh, The Bridge to Eternal Life. And it's just a great explanation of how a person can come to Christ. The other one is called Two Ways to Live. And in that tract it says that we can live our way where we reject God as ruler and try to run our lives our own way. Or we can live God's way, which is to submit to Jesus as our ruler and to rely on His finished work on the cross and through the resurrection. The first way, living our own way, results in eternal condemnation. And the second way, living according to God's way, results in eternal life. It's just a great resource for you to use to hand to an unbeliever or to walk through with them and just to, to show them um, oh, these two ways as they're explained in Scripture. And I think it's a very helpful resource that you can use. But I think that also helps to point us to our response to what we've learned in Leviticus. There's only two ways, there are only two ways in which we can respond. We can respond according to our way and deny what God wants for us, or we can respond God's way and work through the power of Jesus Christ. Let me uh, read the first 13 verses of this passage. We'll go through the entire chapter, but I'm just going to read the first 13 to start with. And then we'll see what uh, we can learn from God's law for Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your, thresh, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land, so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. 
but you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This passage is very clearly broken up into two main sections. One, blessings for obedience, and two, uh, consequences for disobedience those blessings we just read about in verses 1 through 13. And so we could look at this from our perspective and say this is all about uh, how we respond and, and how we must obey and we have to be careful to obey, not to disobey so that we don't bring judgment upon ourselves or punishment upon ourselves. But I think the main point actually is that God is committed to our obedience, that He provides a means of blessing when we obey and He provides Punishment for them, for us, I would say discipline. We'll talk about the, the distinction there. But he, he provides discipline for us when we disobey because He's so committed to our obedience. First, positive incentives for obeying in verses 1 through 13. God's so committed to our obedience that He provides positive incentives for us. He begins in verses 1 and 2 with the fundamentals of the law. These cannot be missed by Old Testament Israel. They must not forget what was of primary importance. And that was the worship of God. True worship of God. Did you notice that in verse 1? You can't have any idols. Because the end of the verse says, I am the Lord your God. And you will remember the Sabbath. This is a time where you will remember me and worship me. As I deserve to be worshipped. And so in this passage, we have God so committed to our obedience, that He promises blessing when we obey. And He promises uh, consequences when we disobey. Now, this, this um, chapter is really part of a larger agreement that God made with His people called the Covenant of Moses or the Mosaic Covenant. This is taking place at Mount Sinai. We're going to see that next week when we get to chapter 27. This is taking place at Mount Sinai where God makes a covenant with His people Israel that if they live in such a way, then God's going to do this. And we see that come out here in the first 13 verses. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will receive consequences. God is very serious about Israel following through on their end of the agreement, the Mosaic Covenant. They're reminded at the beginning of their wilderness wandering that God will be with them when they obey and that God will give them the land. Moses is going to remind them at the end of their wilderness wandering in Deuteronomy chapter 28 these same sorts of principles. When you obey, you'll be blessed. When you disobey, you will receive consequences. But we need to understand that this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, is different from two of the other covenants that God made in the Old Testament. One is the Abrahamic covenant. And the other is the Davidic covenant. That is the covenant he made with Abraham and the covenant he made with David. 
We need to understand that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. In that covenant, there's no mention of curses if they disobey. There's no mention of responsibility on the part of the people. In fact, when God makes that covenant with Abraham, do you remember what Abraham was doing? He was sleeping. God made the covenant a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant. And He set up these animals split in half, which in those days would would uh, show them that this is what would happen to the person who who didn't follow through on the covenant. They would be split in part by two. So then when Abraham's sleeping, God's glory walks through the middle of these cut animals, but Abraham never does. And so what we learn from that is that that is a one-sided covenant. God will fulfill it on His own, apart from us, apart from Israel. It was not dependent upon Israel's performance. It wasn't dependent on Israel's obedience. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through his family. They would be protected. They would be given a specific piece of land and they would possess it. That's still to come. We are receiving many of those blessings today. We already received the Messiah that came through Abraham. We get to enjoy the benefits of knowing that Messiah. But the land has not been given to Israel. That is something that God is still planning to give to them fully and finally. So, the Abrahamic covenant is a one-sided, unilateral, unconditional covenant. The Davidic covenant is the same way. Remember, David said, I want to build a house for you, God. And God said, no, David, I'm going to build a house through you. And what he meant by that was a family line, that a kingly line... Through your kingly line, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. This Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled in your specific kingly line, David. And the, the, uh, the results of that covenant, whether or not that would be carried out, was not based on David's actions or any other uh, Israelite to follow. It was based on God's free choice, on God's end of the agreement. It was unconditional. He was going to bring it to pass. But this covenant that we're talking about today is the Mosaic Covenant, and it is conditional. It's based on whether or not Israel obeys, whether or not they listen to God. They respond, God brings great blessing in the land and great produce. We're going to see all sorts of blessings that they'll get. But also if they disobey, then God's going to bring some curses. God's going to bring some consequences because He's so committed to their obedience as a people. The New Covenant is something that's still to come. It's a covenant that God's already made. It actually replaces the Mosaic Covenant. And it's a covenant that really is initiated by God, but it has to be carried through by us. But it won't happen until we have new hearts. Jeremiah 31 says that I will put a new heart in you. And I believe that's talking about in the millennial kingdom when sin will be no more for believers. This new covenant will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and Israel will be able to enjoy the land that God had promised through the Mosaic Covenant. Not that God wasn't going to follow through on the Mosaic Covenant. It was that the people weren't going to follow through on their end of the deal. And so God had to come up with a new covenant that kind of ratifies the Mosaic Covenant. The Abrahamic and Davidic Covenant, they're still in place. 
But this new covenant would replace the Mosaic covenant. He would give them a new heart and allow them to be able to obey so that He could give the blessing that He wanted to give. That's just a little bit of context so that you understand what's going on here. That God expected something of the people because He was so committed to their obedience. So in verse 1, He tells them no idols. That's the main thing. Israel needed to set themselves apart from the pagans. These pagans worshipped gods made of wood and stone, and God was clear that He would not be worshipped in that way. He could not be confined to one material item like, a, like, a, like an idol. And so He would be worshipped in spirit instead. In verse 2, keep the Sabbath and revere the sanctuary. Take a day off. Rest. Reflect on God. Spend time in worship to Me. Trust My provision in that day off. God called for them to do that. And if they did, verses 3-13, through 13, then God was going to give them three things. Let me show you the structure so you can see that God's given them three things and then we'll look at each of the three things. First, verse 4. Let's start in verse 3. If you walk in My statutes and keep My commandments so as to carry them out, then, and here's the first one, I shall give you. Verses 4 and 5 are going to tell us what those are. Verse 6, kind of a continuation of verse 3. If you do this, then I shall, verse 6, grant peace in the land. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 10. And then verse 11 will be the third thing that God gives. Moreover, in other words, here's another thing that I'm going to give you. I will make my dwelling among you. So those are the three things, and we'll look at those each in turn. Number one, first blessing of obedience is productive agriculture. Productive agriculture. He says, I shall give you rains in their seasons. It was important for Israel to have rains at specific times throughout the year because they had more than one harvest. In the early summer, they expected a harvest of grain. And then a few months later, they expected a harvest of grapes and olives. And so they needed rain throughout the year. They would need rains during the seasons. We think of rain, we think of it as a drudgery. We don't want rain. We pray that there is no rain. But actually, rain is necessary for those who are in the agricultural agricultural industry. And so they would look at this as a means of great blessing. The point is, is that this land would be so abundantly productive that they would have the sustenance that they needed and even more. Look at verse 10. You will, eat, you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. You're going to get rid of some of those things that are just sitting there in the silos so that you can bring in the new harvest. It will be in the way. It will be so productive. But for Israel, it wasn't enough for them to have abundant food. That food had to be protective because someone could come along and pillage that food or something. And that's why there's verses 6 through 10, the second blessing of of obedience, which is peace from enemies. Verses 6 through 10, peace from enemies. There are two kinds of enemies that could take away their harvest that had come in. First, dangerous animals. Verse 6, I shall also grant you peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you trouble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. So the first kind of adversary, the first kind of enemy that they could have to their productive agriculture were were dangerous animals. So God was saying, I'm protecting you from them. I'm going to remove them from the land. And then secondly, from dangerous enemies. The end of verse 6 says, 
and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five will chase a hundred and a hundred ten thousand. So God is going to protect them from the animals that could potentially take their harvest and also from the enemies that could steal from them. So productive agriculture, protection from enemies, and then third, and this is the best blessing of all, if they would obey, verses 11-13, through 13, they would enjoy the presence of God. The presence of God. Verse 11 reads, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God. God says, I will make my dwelling among you. Old Testament Israel had a taste of that in the wilderness. They had a taste of God's presence as He would come into the tabernacle and as He would lead them along the way. And New Testament Israel got a taste of God's presence when the Messiah came. But we will experience the presence of God in a way unlike has ever happened in, in human history, and that is when we will see God's face, Revelation 21.3. And He will live among us, and we will be His people, and He will be our God. That day is coming in a very clear way when we will be able to enjoy the unhindered presence of God, unobstructed by our sin, the consequences of our sin, the curse that's on this earth. We'll be unobstructed by those things and be able to see God in all of His glory in a way that's not been seen in fallen human history. So these are the blessings when Israel obeys. Productive agriculture, protection from enemies or peace among their enemies, and then the presence of God. But there are also negative consequences or negative incentives for failing to obey, and there are five of them. There are five curses. Let me show you verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commands, so here's the contingency, if instead, verse 15, you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, then here is the first curse. I in turn will do this to you. So there's the first one, verses 16 and 17. The second one is found in verse 18. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will... And here comes the second one, the second curse, verses 18 through 20. And in verse 21, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will... And here comes the third curse, verses 21 and 22. And then 23, If by these things you are not turned to me but act with hostility against me, then I will... And here comes the fourth curse, verses 23 to 26. And then the final curse is found in verses 27 through 39. Yet in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And there's the fifth curse. All right, so let's look at each of these in turn. First, the curse of general warning or general consequences, verses 16 and 17. If you don't obey me, verses 14 and 15, this is what I will do to you. Verse 16, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. 
I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Notice that Israel will not have success in the land. Notice how God expects them to obey. He expects them to obey with all their being, not all their being, not just with external rituals or or works. Look at verse five again. If instead you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors, if you hate my ordinances, if you hate what I have set up for you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bring about some consequences. Sudden terror. Your fear from your enemies. Instead of five chasing a hundred and a hundred chasing ten thousand, you're going to be fearful of your enemies. You're going to be in terror. And it's going to consume you. So the first curse is one of general consequences. The second one is the curse of agriculture. Verses 18 through 20. A curse of agriculture. He says, if you don't obey me, verse 18, verse 19, I will also break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Again, remember how important the rains were to the people of Israel and the agricultural society. God says, I'm going to make the sky like iron. The rain, are, the rain is not going to be able to penetrate the sky. And your field, because of that, because of not having any, any rain, the field is going to be like bronze. You're going to try to put the plow in there and all of your efforts are going to be spent uselessly. It's not going to do any good. The ground's going to be too hard to produce anything. And so you will have a curse with regard to the agriculture. All their hard work would be of no value. Number three, the third curse is the curse of dangerous animals. Remember, remember they were going to have peace from their animals in, uh, in verse 6. But here, in verses 21 and 22, they're, they're cursed by having these dangerous animals come. Verse 22, I will let loose among you the beasts of the field which will bereave you of your children. It's quite a shocking statement. These animals will actually kill some of their own family members and and they will destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie de- deserted. Instead of having peace among these dangerous animals and that, instead of having them removed from the land, they these busy roads that usually meant a lot of commerce were all abandoned because of these dangerous animals that would come in and wipe out people and animals and 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 production. So if Israel did not obey, God would send these animals. Number four, verses twenty three to twenty six, the curse of war and oppression. Verses twenty three to twenty six, the curse of war and oppression. If verse twenty three, by these things you are not turned to me, then verse twenty four, I will act with hostility against you. Even I will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. And when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. 
their rejection of God through disobedience would result in His rejection of them. Okay, Keep in mind, this is not God's unconditional covenant. So don't think about this in terms of your salvation, that God's coming to strike me and He's going to forget me and He's going to give all these bad things to me. No, this is talking about this conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where if they rejected God, God would reject them. Verse 26 shows it perhaps in the starkest of of, uh, illustrations. Ten women would use only one oven to to bake their bread. Normally, in times of prosperity and times of normal agricultural growth, ten women would need ten ovens to bake their bread. But in times of war and pestilence, only one oven would be needed. And that bread would be taken in rationed amounts to the men who were battling in war, apparently, and they would eat and not be satisfied. It's because of their disobedience that God would would abandon them effectively. Curse number five, and it gets worse, is a curse of exile. They would actually be removed from the land. Verses 27 through 39, the curse of exile. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. I, even I, will punish you seven times. Further, you will eat the flesh, verse 29, of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I will then destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the day of the desolation. While you're in your enemies' lands, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the day of its desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from a sword, and they will fall. And they will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing. And you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations. And your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the land of your enemies. And also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. Because of their continued disobedience, the curses get worse and worse. They would be moved, according to verse 29, to cannibalism. That they would eat their own children. Perhaps it was because of the fact that they had nothing to eat, or it could have been because they were starting to adopt pagan worship practices. Look at how graphic it is in verse 30. I will then destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. These piles of idols will be piled on top of with your remains, with dead bodies. There's going to be widespread slaughter of the people of God who rejected Him. 
Verse 31 talks about destruction of cities. Verse 32, the desolation of these cities. Verses 33 to 35 is that they would be taken from this land that had been promised to them, which produces and provides for them and provides all this great prosperity. And God says in verse 34 and 5 that the land would finally have rest. Remember when we looked at the Sabbath year, they were supposed to leave the ground fallow for one year? God says, now that you're gone from the land, the land will have plenty of rest. It's going to get the rest that I told you to give it. Verses 36 and 37, they would be given over to paranoia. The sound of a driven leaf would cause them to flee. They would be tripping over each other, trying to get away when there's no enemies pursuing them. And eventually they would die among the nations. Verses 38 and 39. However, we know that they would not be completely wiped off the face of the earth, but that there would be a remnant, a group of people who would obey and that God would preserve. But God increases His punishment on His people for their continued disobedience because God is so committed to the obedience of His people. And so the only right response by Israel is that they would turn and repent of their sins. And this is what God calls for here in verses 40 through 46. God calls for a right response. Here's how you will be delivered from this exile if you repent. Look at verse 40. Look at what God is looking for. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then, verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it's made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances, the law and laws which the Lord established between Himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. What is God looking for from the people? He's looking for, verse 40, confession of sin, and verse 41, humility of heart. Confession of sin and humility of heart. That God demands and deserves His people to be humble and to confess their sins. Notice verse 41 again at the end. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled. Do you notice that's passive? That it is God that's going to do this work to change them? Later on, he says, verse 45, I'm going to remember the covenant for them. The one that they forgot. I'm going to remember it. And I'm going to change their hearts. 
and to humble their hearts. Aren't you thankful? You don't have to to garnish up enough work in order for God to accept you, but that it, it is God that changes, changes your heart. That it's God who humbles your heart and turns you to Him. Aren't you thankful that God does that? God's promise in verse 42 is that He will remember His covenant to Abraham. Remember, that was an unconditional covenant. A one-sided covenant. And He's saying that I haven't acted according to that covenant because you haven't fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. And so when you do, I'm going to act according to that Abrahamic covenant. I am going to bless you in the land and give you great blessing. And this passage, I believe, would have been a passage of great hope for the people who are in the exile. Look at verse 44 again. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, so when they're exiled from Israel, from Canaan, they need to remember this, verse 44, I will not reject them and I won't hate or abhor them to destroy them, breaking my covenant because I am the Lord their God. This would be a great passage of encouragement that these people in the wilderness don't need right now, but the people during the exile would. It speaks to the timeless nature of God's Word. That it speaks to multiple different generations and the people of the exile would probably read this passage over and over again and be reminded that God had not left them. That He was staying true to His promise. Verse 46 concludes with a summary of the first 26 chapters. These are the laws which were given to Moses for the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Let's think of a couple things in closing here. Number one, we are not Israel. We are not Israel. So, there are no promised punishments for believers. We have to understand that Israel was made up of both believers and unbelievers. It was a nation that was made up of both people who loved God and people who were corrupt. They were just going through the motions. The promises that we have from for God, from God, are not like the promises uh, that He gave to Israel. That God is going to punish us and wipe us out if we sin. So we don't have to fear God in that way. All the punishment that we deserved because of our sin has already been taken care of, hasn't it? Where? At the cross. It went upon Jesus. Everything that we deserved. The record of our debts, Colossians 3 talks about, was nailed to the cross with Christ. He became the record of our debts. And so we, God doesn't look at a record of our debts and say, this is, you're going to be punished for this. There's only two ways that a person can be punished for their sins. One is through the death of Jesus Christ and the other is through an eternal hell, eternal torment in the lake of fire. And if you're a Christian today, you have no fear of punishment. No condemnation now I dread, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation. So, we are not like Israel in that way, that we have to fear that God is going to just come and wipe us out. Trouble for Christian comes in the form of not punishment, but discipline. And for us, discipline at the time is never something that we look forward to. It's never something that we enjoy. 
But when we look back on it, Hebrews chapter 12 says, we're thankful for it because it produces in us something good. And we recognize that everyone that God loves, He does what? He disciplines them. And so we're thankful for that. It's not punishment. When we have trouble come our way, it's discipline. So we're not like Israel in that way. But, number two, we are like Israel in that God owns us. God owned His people. He had freed them from Egypt. Two times we read about it in this passage. I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am your God. And so we're like Israel in that way and that God has brought us out of slavery as well. Not to a people group, but to our own sin. To our master, Satan. To our own lusts. God has brought us out of that slavery and so He now owns us. Doubly owns us because He made us and He bought us. Does He not have the right as our owner to demand certain things of us? Does not God demand obedience of us as well? The temptation for us is that you know we've been bought out of slavery and so now we can live however we want. But God owns us and He has demands on our lives and we must follow Him as He desires, as He has created us to be and He has bought us to be. Number three, we are like Israel in that God demands holiness of us. We are like Israel in that God demands holiness of us. Why do you think our holiness is so important to God? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God demand holiness from us? What what is really at stake here? Is it for our protection? Is it for our personal benefit? And I think on one level we'd have to answer yes to both of those. But I think that you recognize that that our holy character as individuals and as a church reflects on whom? Reflects on God and His holy character. And so what's ultimately at stake here is God's glory. And that's why He's so jealous of our holiness. That's why He demands us to pursue holiness. That's why He says in Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And if we're going to live in sin and speak carelessly and crassly about truth and righteousness, what will that say about our God? You see, our holiness reflects on God's holiness or our unholiness reflects on God's character. It would be as foolish of us to live in unholiness as it would be a spokesperson of the White House to burn the American flag as he's giving an announcement from the president. This is what the president wants, and yet at the same time he's showing his lack of care and concern for our country. See, we, our lives, how we live matters. We can say all we want about God being holy and about how we're concerned about other people understanding His holiness and His greatness, But if we're living lives that are contradictory to what we're saying, then our words mean nothing. In fact, they they do harm to the name of God, to the name of Christ, which our church represents. And so personally, we must purge sin from our lives. We must pursue holiness. And corporately, we must seek to purge sin from our church body. 
You know why Christ died for us as a church? Ephesians 5. To purify us. He died to make us holy. And so God is very serious about our holiness. Finally, we are like Israel in that God always gives us good gifts. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. God always gives us good gifts. Philippians chapter 4. I was talking to Pat Alberton last week. And she mentioned that this, this was before she was in the ICU, but she mentioned that this hospital stay for the last month that she's been in there has really changed her perspective on life. And while I was there, I read Psalm 84, and verse 26 of that psalm reads, No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And that is true. That God doesn't withhold good things from us. That God always gives us good things. But only as long as we agree on what good things are. In our minds, when we read something like that, God doesn't withhold good things from us. When we walk uprightly, we think, well, as long as I obey, then God's going to give me good things. And the good things we're thinking about are the good things that we like. But take, for example, the Apostle Paul or our Lord. Would you describe those two men as men who walked uprightly? Do you believe that that promise in Psalm 84 was meant for them at all? And I would say yes to both of those. I hope you would as well. Did God ever withhold any of the good things that we often think about from Paul and our Lord? Like food or clothing or shelter or safety? Did God ever withhold any of those things from Paul or Christ? Look at chapter 4. Verse 11. What does Paul say here? Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, and listen to this, going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Then look at verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is a good God and He will supply all of our needs. But if we think those needs are food, clothing, and shelter, then we're wrong. Because Paul just said, I know how to be hungry. And I know how to suffer need. But God gives us all the good things that we need. So, so what's God doing here? Is he, he making these promises optional? I will supply all your needs? Maybe. No, the good things that God doesn't withhold are the good things in His sight. The good things for us. Not the good things necessarily that we want. So when we think of obedience and blessing and good things, we tend to think about tangible things like a good house and, a, and money and a good job 
and a peaceful family. But God hasn't promised any of those things to you, has He? The blessings of God, the good things of God, actually more often come in the form of tangible or intangible things like comfort in the midst of a trial. Resolve in the midst of persecution, of an ongoing sin struggle against sin. It's resolved to continue on. Godly friendships. Clear understanding of God's desire and what He wants of you. These are the good things that God promises. And that's what I'm praying that God will give to Pat while she's in the hospital because God never promised that she would make it out of the hospital. But God did promise that He would be with her all the way. God did promise that He would comfort her in times of trouble. And you know what? No pile of money, no nice house, no peaceful family. All of those things would be good things. None of those things could give Pat what she needs right now, which is the comfort, comfort from God that tells her that, she, that He loves her. And that He's on her side. And that God will never leave her or forsake her. Think with me for a minute. Have you ever been to a wedding where one of the people in the wedding promised a, a big house, a lot of money, great prosperity, lots of peace in the family in their wedding vows? Have you ever heard that before? No, in fact, it's the opposite. It is, I'm going to promise to be with you in sickness and in health, in, in times of richness, And in times of poverty, in times of abject poverty. And so here's what a person promises to another person in a marriage ceremony. It is a relationship. That I'm going to be with you all the way. And here's what God promises to us. Not great wealth, not lots of prosperity from a physical or financial sense, but that I'm going to be with you all the way. When there are times of sickness, I'll be there. When there are times of abject poverty, when it feels like all the world is against you, I am there with you, just like He was with the people of the exile. That I will never leave you. I will supply all of the good things that you need to get through those trials. Because I am God. And I am on your side. Isn't that what we really want, folks? We sing, take the world. Take it. You can have it all. But give me Jesus. Don't take Him from me. I need my Jesus. I need Him to be with me. Friends, God's primary desire for you is not to shower you with material gifts. His promise to you is a relationship. His desire for you is to understand His love for you and to recognize that He will never abandon you, that He is on your side, that He is committed to your obedience, so much so that He brings blessings when you obey and consequences when you disobey. He disciplines you. And that's what will distinguish us from those who are in an eternal hell for all of eternity. Not that we'll have a lot of things, although we will. It will be that we will forever be in a relationship with our loving God 
and that He will never leave us. He will never go away from us. We will have an unhindered relationship with Him forever, being able to enjoy His presence. But all those who suffer in hell will never experience that joy. They will not have that relationship. So what sets us apart from unbelievers is not the good things that we hold on to with our hands. The good things that God provides. And aren't you thankful that God always provides good things for His people? Let's pray. Father, You are a good Father to us. You're a good God. You always provide good gifts to us. We're so thankful that You will not withhold any good thing from us and that You will supply all of our needs, even in times of abject poverty, even in times of serious hunger, that You are with us. In times of of struggle with our enemies, times of struggle within our own families even. Thankful that You have encouraged us this morning through the power of Your Word and through the presence of Your Spirit. You are on our side. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen believers today in their understanding of of Your love for them. May we encourage one another along these same lines as long as it is called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Help us, Lord. And Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ, who doesn't enjoy that great love that we experience every day, they would come to realize that there are only two ways to live. Either our own way, or we will be condemned forever, but or Your way, where we trust in Christ and live with You forever and enjoy the benefits that come having a relationship with You. Lord, strengthen our resolve today to continue to serve You and to obey. Thank You that You pursue us and that You jealously guard our need to to obey You. Continue to pursue us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.